Hello, everyone. Here we are, patrolling your borders, even if they're kind of porous. We're searching your oceans for the occasional sign of plastic or plain. We are your news of the world duo. And since I say duo, there must be two, according to the Latin, two guys, that's Latin. And thus being myself, Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, sometimes known as Bicycle Mark, in Amsterdam. And on the other side of these devices, there is one Tim Pritlove in Berlin. Yeah. There he is. Sometimes he is. known as Tim. Well, yeah. if you say you're sometimes known as Bicycle Mark, what are the other times? That's when I'm just known by Mark, Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Oh, okay. Sometimes, yeah. People. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's evolved. I'm. Now on the frisbee field, I'm B Mark or B M. No one ah. calls me Bicycle Mark anymore. I'm B Mark. Oh yeah, you got the frisbee. Yo, B Mark. The frisbee identity. I forgot about that. But if you are Bicycle Mark, I I would probably sometimes be known as Skater Tim. Skater Tim. Yeah. I remember the first time I met you, you were Skater Tim. Yes. Is he or Inline? I don't know what, what the <laughs> best in word line. would be. <laughs> Tim Inline. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you sound very obeying of the rules. <laughs> well, in the end, then maybe I should choose another name. Then. Tim in line. <laughs> Not in line. So we've, we've been off, uh, out, busy for the last almost three weeks, but we finally got in under, I think just under three weeks. And uh, we, are, we are busy, busy people. And I myself, I blame myself for this whole delay because I am now teaching. I'm a school teacher or a some some kind of university teacher so i'm just learning how to do this and manage podcasting life and you know it's the classic story so i won't even bother explaining to people how you can lose your time and fall asleep when you come home even though you didn't mean to fall asleep yeah difficult times for a regular podcast <laughs> yeah well yeah but it's also part of the adventure i get to watch the news discuss it with my students if they care and uh and then come and do this podcast so this can work i just have to learn how okay so uh, students listen up that's right students <laughs> we're of going, the news we're going to discuss the news with you yeah and at the end of class today i'll tell you about your paper that is due tomorrow uh so we'll start in South Korea. Uh, this is one of those accidents uh, that is very tragic, and you know it's it's not. There's nothing really to debate in the in the bigger bigger picture, except perhaps infrastructure and 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 who's to blame. Uh, we've got a ferry that was heading towards this um, apparently very beautiful. I was looking at photos, volcanic island. Uh, I forget the name of the island, but uh, it's on the west coast of Korea, and the ferry was carrying upwards of 300 people, most of them school kids, and it sank. Uh, and authorities are already saying, although it's early to say to be sure, human error is involved with this. Either uh, it went off its normal course uh, and hit rocks, or something else was going on. At this point, 14 have been confirmed dead, but 282 are missing. And uh, they're still searching right now as we, as we speak. And uh, allegedly, the captain of the ship jumped or left the ship at the first sign that, the, that there was something going on, something bad going on. Apparently, they, they passed on a message to people on board to stay exactly where they are as the ship was sort of sinking. 
And this is another area where, one, the captain commit, committed a crime by, by jumping ship. That's a, a classic rule that even non, I think non-ship driving people know. And the other that you tell people, don't worry, stay right where you are, when they may have been able to save themselves or, or save each other uh, otherwise. So this is where it's, it's more than an accident. You know, there's some human negligence involved. Um, you know, I read little things. The ship was 20 years old. It was built in Japan, uh, but it had passed most of its inspections. And then the question becomes, how good are these inspections? So there's a lot of anger in Korea that, you know, they're a very, of course, a very modern country and very capable of doing things, taking care of themselves. And then something like this happens. It really, uh, other than being tragic, it's very upsetting, I think, to many Korean people because this shouldn't happen, right? But then again, yeah, and then, and we they, have examples they, of this all and they, over the world. They probably thought they, they, they should do better. Yeah. And it's and especially tragic because it's full of kids, you know, that, that's yeah. uh, putting a dimension to this disaster that uh, you know, not, not every accident like this has. And uh, although some things might remind us of this uh, other big ship uh, yeah. getting into trouble at the island of what was the name again in Italy. The, the, uh, well, the ship was the Costa know. Concordia. Oh, yeah. The island, I can't remember, but it was definitely Italy. And <laughs> yeah, you have the captain who panicked. What was he trying to wave to his friends? And, uh, and just as things were getting bad, he left, right? And then the company told him to go back on. So here we have possibly another example of a, a ship's captain who just... What horrible behavior and, and criminal, in, you know, according to the rules of, well, decency and actual rules of the sea. Um, so, yeah, that was the, reminds us of the Costa Concordia. I mean, this is one of those strange things, though. If I told you in the United States that something like this happened, you'd say, nah, the United States wouldn't let that happen. But then again, we've had bridges collapse. You know, we always think that we're, we've got it all under control until the day you know, something happens and we're exposed to the fact that a lot of what you hear is, yeah, you know, Korea is modern. Korea can do this, can do that, has a lot of money. But of course, there's still pieces, parts to this Korean society that that are not being taken care of or, or that are not necessarily highest tech or best quality. And it's the same thing in so many countries in this world. You put up a front, you do have a lot of money, you look like you can handle anything, but then basic infrastructure is falling apart. You know, yeah. then the temperature gets too high in Berlin and the and the metros don't run or whatever. S-Bahn doors won't close. <laughs> you know, it's these sort of examples. Yeah. yeah. Or snow in winter. Ah, no, yeah, we can't take, handle take it. In, you know, it just, yeah, surprise. It's cold. <laughs> Nobody told us that. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, we think that because we have these nations that have so much uh, that we can hold up and say, look what we can do. Uh, we think that uh, these things won't happen, but they, they do. And uh, and maybe this will inspire some better rules when it comes to ferries and, and what's acceptable, what isn't, training of captains, I don't know. So this is um, an ongoing search right now, and surely within a day or two you'll hear the sad news probably that many more are dead. I mean, if you have 282 missing and it's already been, I think it's been over 24 hours, uh, that's not a good sign. You know, it doesn't, it, the chances that they're somewhere alive and well decrease dramatically yeah they do so, yeah now meanwhile we have uh, what is not an accident and is very much human created uh, a situation in eastern ukraine in some ways 
this is like watching the slow collapse of something that you knew was going to collapse or you knew something was going to happen. You're just watching it happen. Um, but, you know, it's not to say what's, that we can predict the future here. It's not so obvious. I'm talking about eastern Ukraine, okay? Not Crimea anymore. That's over. That's so one month ago. We're into eastern Ukraine <laughs> Nobody talks Ukraine about now. this anymore. No, no. They're back to taking care of people's vacations or whatever they do. Uh, so now we're in we're in eastern Ukraine. A lot I know uh, a few reporters that have been running around in uh, Donetsk and and in these border regions where some people say uh, pro Russian uh, opinion and also actual paramilitaries or whatever we're going to call them militias are organizing themselves. I've seen lots of photos uh, from different news sources. Actually, Der Spiegel does a very good job. The international section uh, with both written stories and images showing you. Uh, cases where pro-Russian groups have come forward and taken over buildings and they're putting up these big barricades in the center of certain key cities um, and they're saying, you know, we're waiting to be liberated or whatever it is and we don't support Kiev and we don't trust Kiev. Well, now we have a situation where the Ukrainian government has announced they're going to carry out anti-terrorism operations. And anti-terrorism means, you know, if you've taken over a government building, if you're armed and you're saying, you know, we're against the state, I guess you're going to be considered terrorism. But this is where it gets confusing because, well, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to arrest them and say you're a threat to the state? I guess you could try that. But in doing so, you could create, you know, a more of a sentiment of, hey, look what they're doing. This government really is corrupt. They're just arresting us because we don't like them or... So this is really tricky. Yeah, and, 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 and they like could also say like, oh, look, now they're doing the same thing that they accused the other government, the former government Absolutely. to do before. Yeah. yeah, and then a lot of what the media is asking uh, in a very, you know, hoping for drama way, I think uh, they're asking, will Russia get involved? And so there's a lot of information on all these border towns where normally nothing is going on. And apparently there's a lot of buildup of Russian troops arriving at the borders, just ready, just in case. And of course, Putin has made speeches saying he has no interest in... Uh, in uh, Destabilizing Eastern. the country. Yeah, he's not going in. They're not interested. But of course, in his disinterest, he, he, <laughs> he can still make things happen. So I could see a scenario where if anything happens where pro-Russian militants or regular people are at all arrested or harmed they could say well oh, wait a minute this is you're violating their human rights or there's all kinds of ways to, to justify some kind of interfere um, getting involved and on the other hand you've got nato uh who are saying now you know we'll give you support whatever you need non-violent uh weapons so they've promised fuel they've promised the helmets i saw the u.s is sending a lot of old helmets so there's going to be a bunch of ukrainian guys with a lot of helmets um <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so you know this is this whole political game right because you want to say whatever you need we're going to give it to you but you you don't you don't want to say we'll give you lots of guns because that could really um, set off Russia. So you say, okay, we're going to give you all the nuts and bolts and uh, hammers and and gas and nothing that looks like a gun, though. Uh, and so that's what NATO is doing and talking very tough. Um, so this this is a crazy situation. I mean, it seems like even f from the point of view of the Ukrainian government. You're, you're what we say, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you leave it be the way it is, there are sections of eastern Ukraine that are being taken over by armed people. 
Um, maybe if you wait, they'll get tired. Maybe. On the other hand, if you say, no, this can't continue, we're going to go in and we're going to sweep them out, then you may also create sentiment that says, see, they're as bad as we said they were. So it, it, no matter what here, it feels like the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian government is about to step in a huge trap. Yeah, it's not only U Ukraine, it's also that the whole continent is in a, in a deadlock situation here right now because nobody really knows what to do. 100 years after the beginning of the First World War, you know, with everybody being so fucking proud about this, that we have, you know, peace since at least the mm -hmm. Second uh, World War, and there was some you know, uh, stabilization uh, going on over the years, and uh, first of all, no borders ever have been disputed that that even the fall of the wall you know somehow you know found a solution everybody could agree on and now this russia moving in just taking back the crimea and nobody can really do anything about it and this new situation with the eastern ukraine ukraine is much more complicated than that because in the case of the crimea you could still say like Yeah, you know, it's been part of Russia just 50 years ago, and it's mostly Russians, and of course there are the Tatars, and, and, and it's not without conflict, but in general, it's a different situation. Uh, Eastern Ukraine, things are not that easy. And if uh, Russia would move in here, I think everything would be on a totally different level. And it's somehow interesting to see how Europe gets reunited Hmm. Again, a bit, you know, because they haven't been that united at all recently. So, um, uh, also, the NATO is sort yeah. of, you know, everybody is, um, <clears throat> you know, take, taking taking their seats here and 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 you know, uh, <laughs> reconfirming that you know this is all about this is an alliance and we will stand tall and so on. So, uh, I don't think. And I don't, I don't think anybody is really somehow thinking about like, oh, there might be a war with Russia. That's just not going to happen. Um, but in a sense, there is already a new Cold War with Russia going on now, with all those sanctions being uh, started and, 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 and increased more or less on a weekly uh, basis. And Russia has a lot of um, power too in this game. Uh, mm -hmm. Especially when it comes to gas delivery, which is not only a big problem for the Ukraine, but is also a very big problem for certain countries, including but not limited to Germany. Mm. I, I, what scares me about all this is you were saying you, know, you don't think it's going to come to some kind of a war. But what scares me is I think there's a lot of people. Uh, and I think they're an older generation. They're the generation that's still in power in Europe and in, and in, in uh, Russia. I almost said the Soviet Union. Um, that l that this is the they're going back to the world they understand. That's easier to understand for them. And that world is one where there's the enemy, and then there's us. And everything we do is to keep the enemy just scared enough, or at least you know the balance. This balance of power, like you. We can both blow each other up, so that's what's going to cause us to behave. Like last week or two weeks ago, I saw an article, and I really felt like I was living in the 80s. It was about, um, I think it was a, not a U.S., yeah, it was a U.S. Uh, battleship of some kind that was in the Black Sea. I didn't know they were there, but I'm not surprised. And it was buzzed. That was the media term, buzzed by a Russian jet of some kind. 
And, you know, there were a couple of responses. This is a really, you know, hack media job. But from the U.S. military saying, you know, that's not acceptable. And the Russian military saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And there's this attempt by some to say, we're going back to the Cold War. And I think there's a lot of people, including one we're going to talk about towards the end of the show. This is the world they understand best. This other world that we tried for the last 20 years, they never really understood it. It was too undefined. But to go back to an era of Cold War-like mentality, that one, they could sleep better at night because they get it. Uh, <laughs> so that's what scares me, that for so many people, this does unite us. And then somehow every, life makes more sense this way, which I, of course, disagree with, and I think many people do. So it scares me how easily many people are interested and have would benefit from going back to this time. The media, I mean, not to say that it's such a, you know, a conspiracy, but media would benefit, we, they are already benefiting from going back to this time, because then you could do this constant, dramatic, their story, our story, look at this threat, don't worry, it's okay, back and forth kind of thing. There's a lot of people that would benefit from this, this craziness. <laughs> Scary. Yeah, that's, that might be true. But apart from that, I mean, it's interesting to see. I mean, you say like, oh, you didn't know there was a, a, a American ship yeah. in the Black Sea. I mean, don't forget that both Bulgaria and Romania, uh, and on and also Turkey, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is part of NATO, right? And uh, so, and on the other side with the Baltic states, I mean that that's one of the core stories uh, here that Russia somehow feels threatened by mm -hmm. the growing presence of NATO. Not that they have you know achieved anything in terms of pushing them back by you know coming up with this new crisis because it's only making NATO more nervous and actually enforcing uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the 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 presence right now probably not in a dramatic way it's more a political message like look we've got like five new airplanes going closer to russia you know be scared <laughs> yeah. um, but but it's it, it's these uh single uh, uh steps towards something i think but i i th still think we're very far away from any major conflict that includes more than just the ukraine Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because you know everybody knows that that, that would be a clash uh, in, in in dimensions unparalleled. You know, no. we would never. I mean, if if uh, NATO forces and Russian forces would really start a war here, I mean, the you know nothing good. So it's more oh, about yeah. the the little steps, and it's it tells me more about. What are the relationships between countries and blocks these days uh, on an economic scale? Um, yeah. So it's all about energy. I mean, it's the biggest pawn in the game is here for mm -hmm. Russia is to, to have control over uh, gas and oil flow. Mm -hmm. And not everybody in the Europe is really dependent on this. You know, like there are more the western countries spain portugal you know they are usually not getting any gas from russia right. uh germany is quite a lot so if, right. if 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 russia would just stop delivering gas to anybody or well, germany would be in immediate trouble yeah uh yeah. So not that matters yeah, yeah, yeah not not in a trouble of the uh, in the dimension of oh my god everything is going to burn tomorrow because for at least a few days weeks or probably even months there are like reserves the 
yeah. where they could deal with this. Long term, it would be a disaster. And short term, it would also be a disaster in terms of uh, stocks going down and so on, all these uh, uh, effects it would have on the financial markets. But on the other side, if Russia would do that, they would sort of you know, lose both income significantly uh, and... Um, <clears throat> It's also they would probably lose the 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 big stick they uh, right now have in their hands, wielding, saying like, "Oh, be uh, afraid!" You know, we are still big Russia. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, right, it, it's 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 a mess. Uh, it's it's a big mess. I don't know where this leads to, no. but it could be a problem we're going to deal with for a very long time. Yeah. I don't think. And this what is I what I would wish awesome. for, I mean, but besides, you know. A piece. What I would also wish for is a Ukrainian government that were more creative. I understand, you know, we've just laid out how this is tricky for them. At the same time, if they were really creative, maybe they'd find a third way to do this. Uh, you know, don't do the obvious. Don't fall into traps. But yeah, it's easy to say. I don't even have the exact suggestion. Uh, One thing yeah. they have done is uh, talking about a federal state. Right now, uh, the Ukraine is still very Soviet-style, centralistic. Mm -hmm. Everything is more or less determined and uh, the current uh, president and uh, also the head of government, I think they've both talked about the option of, you know, coming up with a federal system for the Ukraine, which would in turn give these other regions more autonomy. Of course, they uh, want it all and want uh, anything from total independence to at least uh, a total autonomy, you know, mm -hmm. which probably means... Uh, especially defining their own fate in terms of uh, economic um, rules right. and taxes and so on. So that's not going to be uh, that easy. And I think everybody fears here that whenever they are making um, one step uh, towards the other, that they could just like move away two mm -hmm. steps from them and, mm -hmm. and, and turn. Uh, and there's no trust in this whole uh, situation right now. And, Russia isn't really helping in that sense. <laughs> no. Because nobody sees them as somebody who, you know, can influence things for the better. Yeah. Uh, but more like, okay, if we make the wrong move, they're going to move in, they're going to take more of it. Uh, even, the, uh, I mean, some media, I don't, I don't believe this, but somebody even comes up with things like, oh yeah, they're going to plow their way through southern U eastern and southern ukraine to get a tunnel to uh, transnistria you know like moldavia yeah. you know the, the, yeah. the other uh, region uh, of uh, freedom we talked about like this <laughs> there's there's a bit of um i would call it at this point a conspiracy theory that there's a plan for a greater russia and Oh, anyway, even by mentioning it, I'm <laughs> I'm giving more airtime to a conspiracy theory. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that that goes to that whole thing of the plan to connect these regions that are going to side with Russia and be part of a new Russia. Oh, anyway, uh, for sure we'll be back, and when we come back, uh, be it next week or whenever, we'll still be talking about this. So uh, yeah. every week, a little more on the Ukraine, and it is in many ways. It's not just about the Ukraine, right? It's about the kind of world we live in and the way we function between countries. I mean, this is about a lot more than just this region, <laughs> clearly. Yeah, and it could be a disaster, but it could also be somehow a catalyst for some kind of next world hmm. order. Hmm. Uh, you know, if if I want to see it very in a, in a, in a positive light, 
it, it at least crisis is always somehow um, force you to to redefine your position and come to conclusions that you would otherwise sort of postpone to to next day next week next year yeah sometime you know but right now everybody has to find a position on this and and has to uh, also define new principles of what is it what we really want how do we define freedom how do we define uh, security in europe what are the mechanisms what is the the basis for ongoing peace uh, with Russia? Yeah? Do we have to sort of give something to Russia? Is Have we made a mistake in the past by just taking more and more and more? I mean, the West has been eating up all these former communist areas, integrating one country after the other, both into NATO and the EU. And that's something that has scared Russia, you know? Uh, you could argue if they have reasons to be scared, you know? And of course, our Western view is like, oh, what do you want? We are the good guys anyway, you know? We just bring you peace, love, harmony, uh, and hamburgers. And uh, <laughs> so uh, what the fuck are you so scared about, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, because everybody is sort of surprised to see the Russian propaganda making uh, progress with this notion of like the fascists are taking over. It's it's the the speech of Second World War times that they are dealing with in media. That that's how they see uh, the situation in the Ukraine. That fascist powers have taken over and they're sort of threatening the Russian uh, Empire as it was happening in the Second World War. Of course, we are not really here in, in the new Hitler situation, but on the other hand, you can't really say like, oh, yeah, we're just the good guys and, you know, mm -hmm. what's this fuss all about? Because there is something, you know, what we've done wrong, for sure. Yeah. We'll all see. right. Let us move to a different part of the world. Let's go down over to Taiwan. Now, uh, Taiwan, of course, an, an island nation, uh, but very economically busy and, and strong. Uh, I heard this one on, actually, first on French radio. There was an expose about the anti-nuclear campaign in Taiwan, which has, in the last six months alone, uh, seen a huge resurgence. And it sort of came after last month, Uh, it was the, I mean, although it was a Japanese event, it was a kind of a global event, I'm talking about the Fukushima disaster, it was the third anniversary, and there were mass protests all over the island of Taiwan, uh, more than 50,000 people, and it was about bringing an end to nuclear energy on the island. So let's put these two things together. Now, of course, Taiwan is not Japan, but uh, Taiwan has three nuclear power plants, and there was a plan, it's actually being built, a fourth one. And what they see is the potential for disaster because they know they have their earthquakes and the chances of tsunami are high. So, uh, well, people have put two and two together and they're saying we can't keep going on this nuclear path because we'll all destroy ourselves eventually. And so these protests are so strong that, in fact, the fourth power plant that was being built uh, was supposed to take over for, I think, one of the older ones. Uh, is now apparently halted, and it doesn't look like it, it, it may never come online. And there's this other whole debate, which we've covered on this program on many occasions. Uh, if you've ever heard of Orchid Island, 
Uh, it's apparently a very beautiful island uh, belonging to ta- uh, Taiwan. And they've had a nuclear storage facility, waste storage facility, since the 80s on that beautiful island. And a couple of, you know, 100,000, what, tons of waste. Uh, you know, it's a long time that they've been using it. And people are, at this point, they want it out. They want it moved. They're protesting often uh, and loudly, and they're getting a lot of political support. Uh, a few leaders in the big Taiwanese uh, opposition parties have gone on things like hunger strikes and are taking all kinds of big actions to say, we don't want this. Um, so it's interesting that, uh, yeah, you know, Fukushima has these global, of course, ramifications. And one of them is that the island of Taiwan is now very much uh, against nuclear. 70% of the population is what the latest statistics say. Um, it's not, you know, they only use, I think, 18% of their power comes from nuclear power plants. But as I said, on an island uh, in that kind of situation, even just 18% of your power, that's three power plants. That if, they, if anything happens between flooding and earthquakes, uh, you would have almost no land that would be usable at that point. Yes, and it's interesting to see this in the wake of the recent uh, decision by Japan to sort of reverse on the original decision to, yeah. uh, you know, to, to sort of re... They're getting back into the atomic business because they, I don't know, have no willingness or no don't see any capability to, to come up with other solutions, which is uh, really sad to see that happening. Yeah. I'm still surprised that Japan is on the atomic path, given mm-hmm. the fact that they are the country who has suffered the most from atomic disasters in their history over a very long period of time. So I don't know what else could happen in Japan to you know, make them wake up. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't yeah. two atomic bombs and one global nuclear disaster enough You know, for this little island? I don't know. But on the other hand, also interesting to see that Taiwan being sort of the Chinese democratic part, you know, mm-hmm. uh, is actually coming to this conclusion while mainland China is huh. obviously uh, going the opposite direction here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mainland China could always argue like, oh, and, and this is what Japan's nuclear authority does too. They say, well, we have all these other nuclear power plants and they're not in danger zones, right? So, so that's where we get very subjective. I say, you know, on the beach, dangerous, but a couple of kilometers in from the beach, not dangerous. So, you know, this is kind of <laughs> logic. So China has all the landmass to say, well, don't worry, because we have these places where there's no, uh, no flooding and no, no natural disasters. Yeah, what could happen? I mean, we have so, so much space. But then if you look at the environmental situation, especially in some cities like Beijing yeah. and so on, I don't know how, long, uh, how much longer this could uh, Oh. Yeah. Well, uh, Tim, nuclear does not pollute, so don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> the air yeah, smells they... and feels good around the plant. Yeah, for a while. Uh, yeah, it's just a matter of trusting your society to be able to deal with this uh, scale of problems. Now, and, what I yeah. what I didn't see, uh, although if we search deeper, maybe we'll find some examples, is what else Taiwan is doing energy-wise. In other words, we know you have lots of uh, shoreline, so is it a wind thing? I imagined it could be. Um, surely 
they're going to come up with some other strategy, whether or not it'll ever meet the amount of energy they need. So I kind of wondered what it would be, right? I mean, it's unlikely to be solar, uh, considering that land mass is limited. So I didn't really see any indication in all these articles. Right now, it's very much about the anti-nuclear sentiment, which is interesting. But there's not much about what else is going on. Taiwan is, of course, very technologically advanced. So surely they could do something, and they maybe are. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. They're very very advanced, and they've shown to be able to um, you know follow follow up on on, on technological uh, development pretty quickly. And uh, I wouldn't say solar is out of the question. I mean, just by you know using roofs and so on, you mm -hmm, can achieve mm -hmm. uh, a lot with uh, solar. And uh, I don't know what the situation is. Tidal energy could be interesting uh, too. But you're mm. you're right. There is no strategy here. There's some how the strong anti-nuclear uh, right. um, movement now, but there's no pro-something-else movement that you know is able to replace hmm. it. Yeah, and that's a similar case. We don't know so much about the people in Japan who are working on solutions uh, outside of nuclear. They probably exist. They just never, maybe they're, they're, whatever they're working on is not at the stage yet where it's gone public. Or So we don't get this in a lot of media reports. Yeah, it's uh, it's really annoying. <laughs> yes, we have to search. We have to be better searchers. All right, let's go to some uh, unfortunately bad news uh, back in Nigeria, where we have uh, been several times on this program. Uh, Boko Haram once again in action, and as we know, Boko Haram is all about ending the well uh, they're against the idea that uh, girls go to school among other things and uh, this week it was the big news that a hundred schoolgirls it was actually more than a hundred were abducted from a school taken um boko haram militants came in they pretended to be nigerian soldiers and they were said they were there to evacuate the girls to save them and of course they were kidnapping uh this was again in this borno state uh which is i believe northeast that has been plagued by these kind of problems. Uh, same day, outside of the capital, Abuja, a bomb went off, killing 75 people. Uh, again, I think it's linked to Boko Haram. And uh, this is, I mean, crazy. Uh, apparently, I think the Nigerian government says most of those girls have been uh, um, saved already, or somehow. Uh, but still, this whole idea that... Uh, the Nigerian government can't seem to protect schools and keep people in school. And uh, clearly they know what, who's the target and what's the target, but they fail to, to help so far. Um, I was looking up some education facts and, and one particular article that came from the Brookings Institute. I'll, uh, I'll find a link for it. Um, kind of broke it down in terms of statistics. So, of course, we know like Nigeria has 50 million uh, 50 billion, excuse me, uh, in oil revenues. And that was already a stat from two years ago. Um, but at the same time, some of the lowest spending uh, on education in the world is, is the Nigerian government's budget. Um, little things, 37% of primary school age girls uh, do not attend school. And that's compared to 30% of boys. So overall, there is a problem that they most or at least almost half of their children in Nigeria don't go to school. And now we have this other idea that a group of people that are strong and scary say girls should not go to school and we're going to physically stop them. 
Um, and then you've got, you know, a 68% poverty rate. You've got 11,000 people being born every day in Nigeria. It's, I don't know, this country is, despite all of its wealth and power, it, it is in perhaps one of the worst situations going, going forward. Yeah, and it's also the the place where you uh, see this strange struggle between Christ Christian and uh, Islamic ethnic groups uh, being fought out for the hardest. Yeah, I mean, I, and in some ways, not not like what you had pointed out about the Ukraine, a very centralized nation, and in this case, again, a huge nation. Uh, very centralized authority. So education policy, security policy, it all comes from the central government, which may be one of the reasons why regions, states, like in the Northeast, can can sort of be so vulnerable. And uh, and maybe that, that people there don't necessarily understand the decisions coming from the central government. Um, not to say, you know, they're right, girls shouldn't go to school, but maybe there's some way, some other way to get people... Uh, to understand why and how. And, but yeah. So it, it just seems like Boko Haram in these last six to 12 months, every month they've got an attack that, that gets out in international press as, as something huge. And uh, they've got the upper hand against what should be, what is a very strong government uh, with a lot of resources at their disposal, but unable to use them or unwilling. That's what I can't tell. Yeah, nothing to add from my side. Um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things, right? We just oh, see the news things. coming and there's not much to say. Like, you know, we all do not like what's happening, but then how to solve it. Uh, let's go to another case of oh, crime and, and just amazing that this can still happen. Over in Brazil, everybody's getting ready for the big party. What are we at? We're at April and come end of June, it'll be World Cup fever. And I've seen photos. The stadiums are built. Uh, everybody's very excited. One of my Brazilian students was buying tickets during class, uh, which I usually frown upon. But all right, fine. Uh, the city of Salvador um, had... A, first of all, it had a police strike. Now, so there's interesting things. This always happens. Um, you, here, you know, you've got Brazil, you've got the World Cup... And what? You've got the Olympics eventually. So people know that the world has their eyes on the country. And so you've had these cases of strikes from different groups, like in Rio after Carnival, which was last month, no, February. Uh, there was a huge garbage strike in Rio, and it lasted, I think, for a few days, and apparently very disgusting, of course. Um, and they were demanding better pay. And they're demanding this in the context they know, you know, the World Cup is coming up. You know, the government is is benefiting immensely and everybody's looking and they actually won their strike. Uh, they, they did get a wage, uh, raise. So in some States you've had police strikes. So same similar situation, police are asking for better pay and so forth. So in the city of Salvador, which is one of the host cities for the, for the world cup games, there's been this police strike. I think it lasted, uh, two or three days. And during this police strike, uh, a wave of crime, which involved murder, among others, left 39 people dead. And it only ended when the government deployed the military. So then I started looking up Brazilian deployment of military. And I saw that actually in Rio, again, we go back to Rio, outside of the airport in favelas, they've now deployed the military. And they're going to be permanently in these places until, at least until after the, the World Cup. Uh, 
this is all part of this thing because they uh, maybe in some cases they expected to have everything under control by now and since maybe they haven't gotten it they're just going to send the military so it's amazing where this you know a democracy uh leading up to this world event is just going to say well if you guys can't behave yourselves we're going to enforce it by the barrel of a gun by the use of our military so what a weird situation uh world cup i I can't even think i mean not even south africa had this feel where you saw you know the military patrolling the streets but but brazil is going to have this in cities like salvador and and in parts of rio uh, it's it's crazy, you know, and and, and probably the world won't even notice because they'll be cheering for football and they'll be so happy and they won't notice what's going on outside. But it's also but it's interesting to see that this looks to me like the first country really that is really try seems really to be in big trouble just before this event start i mean usually you have some kind of reports like oh yeah construction yeah. is delayed and so on but then eventually it all turns out fine right, nobody right. talks about this but True. here it's like oh yeah the main stadium there was this part that crashed you know that this crane falling into it and it's not really ready and nobody knows if it's going to be ready and should have been ready already and and so on so um that that's a problem then you we we've been talking about these clashes these yeah. uh, social rights uh a, a year before yeah. you know yeah. and we thought like oh yeah you know now they the the country really has to you know turn their eyes on on this so in order to keep uh people come for for this big event where all the eyes are going to be on this country now it doesn't really look like they're going to be able to do that uh no. it's fascinating so i don't know it's a it's really a time for brazil i think where they have to find a way um to i don't know to 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 react as a nation somehow to this situation i yeah. i don't know what the um, event is itself is going to be. It doesn't really look like like okay, then football is on and no, nobody cares anymore. Doesn't really look like this. Maybe I'm wrong, but we'll you, see. you think the world will still people outside the country would still be asking questions about what's going on? You mean? Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, if these riots are going on, let's <laughs> just say that these riots continue uh, right into the event. Yeah. Um, of course, everybody's going to talk about it. This is going to be world news. Ukraine is going to have to struggle <laughs> for news uh, attention here. And um, so, and I, I don't know what the reaction of the nation is going to be. Yeah. Like, I don't know. In, in general, not just the government, like the nation, like everybody, because it's a proud nation. You know that. Sure, sure. And, 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 and I think they have any any interest to you know, stand there as sort of having reached their goal. I mean, it's they've been on a long trip last 10, uh, 15 years. I don't know. When when did this... What, the announcement? No, no, not just uh, the... Oh. Uh, like, like Brazil, the new Brazil. Like the oh, new Brazil with... Uh, uh, since Lula. Since, since Lula, Lula so came into power. Terms, so we're, we're probably 15 years into new Brazil. Yeah, yeah. That's it, you know? Before it was like a developed country or somehow develop yeah. uh, underdeveloped developing country yeah, yeah and and right now their uh self-awareness is, awareness is more like 
Yeah, we are the new. We are the the main power of South America, and we are a yeah. global player, and we are a part of the G20. And you know, we've right. got influence. We've 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 been a part of the world. Yeah, and oh, I yeah. think that this football event somehow is meant yeah. to be the defining moment of where they finally say, like, look at us. You know, we're mm -hmm. another big part of this world. True, and now it all looks as if it's going to be destroyed by these uh, riots. Oh, uh, possibly. I don't think it's going to be destroyed. I think it's just going to be. They could have been this. Yeah, in their look at me moment, it could have been. Yes, look at us, Brazil. Look what we can do, and it all works. Everybody's part of this process, and instead, it may be a. Yeah, look at us. Oh yeah, well we had to, you know, crush some people and and use some guns to get this thing done. But we got it done. You know, I think they're going to, yeah. oddly enough, they're going to turn to a more heavy-handed way, a power, to um, to do this instead of this more, you know, things are just better, right? So the standard of living is improved and people are not, the, you know, crime is not as much of a problem. I thought that was going to be how this is going to go. And now it looks more like, well, yeah, standard of living is good, but military on the streets, go. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But then again, it's not too late where we have another scenario like you described. Just when everything looks horrible, uh, all of a sudden, it all just works. <laughs> you know, it's, it's been repeated so many times that it just seems like this would be another one somehow. But it seems hard <laughs> to imagine at this point. Yeah, yeah. true. Uh, so keep an eye on Brazil because, well, we got only a few months before we're all heading to Brazil. Yeah, and of course, this podcast <laughs> is just going to be about football then. Yeah, we're actually going to set up a little desk outside of Salvador <laughs> Stadium. Football news of the world. <laughs> With bulletproof glass around us, just in case. <laughs> uh, it's good for sound, you know. <laughs> It is. All right, so this week I do not have a um, resource or a new news source, but I do have a documentary recommendation. I've been on a documentary tear these last weeks in between doing work. And Errol Morris, who brought us, my favorite was Fog of War, which yeah. was such a great documentary, uh, but he also did uh, Thin Blue Line. Well, he's got a new one, and it's called Unknown Known, which uh, <laughs> should remind many people of the old Donald Rumsfeld uh, diatribe about there are no knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown knowns. <laughs> and everybody was just like... What? what? <laughs> <laughs> well, he took this and he really made something out of it. Uh, it's a documentary that is just him and Donald Rumsfeld and lots of impressive footage of his career. Of course, Rumsfeld at this point is a pretty old man, but still very clever, maybe too clever for this documentary because he doesn't, he doesn't tell you too much. He, he's, his answers are very calculated. And he goes from his early days with Nixon... Um, to to George W. Bush days until he eventually left, and yeah, he, man, he's seen it all. Yeah, he's seen it all. I mean, it's interesting to know that he has been both the, the youngest and I think the oldest defense uh, minister. That's true. Yeah, in the U.S. and oh yeah, uh, I mean, spanning the time from Nixon to today, or at least until George W. Bush. Uh, that's something it's, it's amazing and and i mean if you look at the early images and he talks about it in the documentary when he first started working at the white house different jobs um 
Dick Cheney, this is how you know he's old. Dick Cheney was his young junior deputy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so we remember the Bush administration where Dick Cheney is the old crotchety man. Uh, But actually he was, he somehow, he was below Rumsfeld for most of his career. There are lots of impressive things. Uh, 9-11 has got to be some of the most interesting stuff. Um, Iraq, definitely. And it's really strange. And this happens in Errol Morris documentaries. Uh, If anyone saw The Fog of War, you remember Robert McNamara, who was the defense secretary under uh, uh, even Nixon and before. And he, you know, he talks about decisions to to do bombings, uh, to deploy military in Vietnam. And he's an old man. So he he says, yeah, I, I don't know why we did that, or we were wrong. He was very human, and he even cried at certain points. Now, Rumsfeld doesn't do any of that. He, it's like he loves his answers. He's, he's honest. He, you know, we didn't know. This, that's why this whole unknown known thing. He talks about Iraq like, well, we tried. Well, we had to do something. At one point, there's this quote that you'll hear in all the uh, trailers. Um, the filmmaker asks, 9-11, how did they get away with that? It seems unbelievable. And Rumsfeld, in his Rumsfeld way, just real quiet for a while, and then he goes, in retrospect, everything is unbelievable. And he smiles. Now, on the surface, great, you're right. Life <laughs> is unbelievable when we look back on it. But some things are more unbelievable than others, okay? Like, 9-11 is not the same as... I don't know. I happen to find five bucks on the street. It's all very unbelievable, but it's not the same. But when you watch Rumsfeld, it's you, you, you somehow you side with him. You understand his, you know, you had to try. You make wrong decisions. That's what he says a lot. You know, sometimes you, you think you know, <laughs> you think you know, <laughs> and then it turns out you didn't. <laughs> uh, you've, I, I think everyone should see this documentary. It's not better. I don't think it's better than Fog of War, but it doesn't matter. It's, uh, it, it really lets you into his world a little bit and you understand the human instead of just the media animal that, that was created. Um, it's very disturbing. <laughs> so by all means, watch it. And the last film that Errol Morris did, or the, the big one with Fog of War, had, um, what's his name, uh, who does all the great orchestral... Um, uh, well, this time he has Danny Elfman doing the music, and Danny Elfman did a lot of these uh, Edward Scissorhand type, you know, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and so um, it's a little weird to have this music with uh, images of war and Rumsfeld, but it works. Um, who was it, the last guy? Uh, Glass. Philip Glass did the... Uh, oh. Really? And that was better. I think Philip Glass and war and, and politics and life worked better for me. But Danny Elfman, very interesting it's amazing how important music becomes in such a simple documentary. Images, person, filmmaker asking questions. And music, that's all you got, pretty much. Uh, so, highly recommended. Uh, so, yeah, our- the unknown known coming soon to a BitTorrent <laughs> site near you. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You I, can even purchase it if you're so bold. I've watched only the trailer, but I found it very interesting. You know, I mean, the the subtitle is... Why is this man smiling? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's or it's, it's the uh, no, it's not. I don't think it's the official I subtitle. It's it's too. on the poster of the the movie poster. You know, the, yeah. the subtitle is "What you didn't know, you didn't know." Uh, why is this man smiling? And then, of course, with an image of 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 Rumsfeld smiling, and it's he's still on top of things. 
Yes. He's, yeah. There's no guilt. Nothing. <laughs> He doesn't know. It's like, no. what What the fuck are you talking about? You, you, at some point in time, you will know why we did this, although you don't understand it right now. That's sort of yeah. the... the, the, the yeah. No regrets. Yeah. And, and he does a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about with Ukraine with this logic of, um, I mean, a certain kind of logic where he says, uh, you know, we, we have to act in our interests. This is very old school, you know, political theory. Anybody who studied politics read Machiavelli or, or yeah, some, some political thinkers that said you act according to your interests. So Rumsfeld talks like that all the time. You know, we knew that we had to do something about Saddam because he was going to be a problem. And I was like, uh, there was no evidence. Pr problem yeah, for we you. What? Yeah, that's an uh, unknown known. You know, that's. <laughs> but then there is. You think you know that now, but yeah. you will soon find out that you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, he might not be. Right, exactly. You didn't know that you didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, And he gets into details, of course, about meeting Saddam uh, for the first time. I think he only met him once or twice. And it's uh, he acts as though. He didn't quite understand the man. He was a little confused. Sure, they shook hands, but and they did business uh, from a government point of view. But he really didn't. He wasn't so sure about the guy from the beginning. So he makes that very clear. Like, oh no, we weren't friends. It was weird, you know. Um, it's it's uh, yeah. It's I don't know. And and also he describes like the invasion of Iraq, and he says. I didn't know about the plan until one day I walk into the White House or to the Oval Office and Cheney and Bush tell me about the plan. And he was the head of defense. So he acts as if he didn't always know what was going on, which is bizarre. You know, he should have known what was going on. So he acts more like the old man that they kind of tolerated. Uh, also interesting, Rumsfeld had an obsession with the, and this is where I can relate to him, with the mini cassette recorder. He recorded memos every day, several, and he chose to speak them, and then someone would write them out for his staff. And he was obsessed with the little details. He would have loved podcasting if he would realize <laughs> it was going on. Because um, he just, he makes these memos on like, you know, what's the definition of terrorism? What's the definition of an insurgent? He made all these words. He was obsessed with words. He still is. So um, he's apparently written the most memos of any government official ever, uh, c the combined amount of time that he's been there and his obsession with writing memos. So this, this old man, in some ways, was busy writing memos and recording messages while, in his version anyway, uh, other people made these huge decisions to go to war and torture people. <laughs> oh, my God. It's a bit hard to believe. Yeah. The unknown known. Watch it. Yes. Yes, and uh, that's it for our knowns and our list of unknowns as well. We might know more uh, if we return next week for another episode. Yes, <laughs> that's true. That's going to be busy weeks. Yes, oh, but thankfully we get these pseudo-Christian holidays to, uh, to make room for, for podcasting and wandering the streets. Yeah, it helps a bit. I'm going to leave uh, for Stuttgart. Today, oh. actually, uh, during the Easter days, there's usually this traditional meeting of the Case Computer Club called the Ooh. Easter Hag, Ooh. Uh, <laughs> which okay. is more a, a more a still conference-like, but more an informal style of uh, meeting. Not as big, not as extensive, not as full-blown as the Congress every year but a good way for the core community uh, to meet mm -hmm. and organize this and it's usually 
organized by a regional group. Mm. So it moves from city to city. Uh, so this time it's going to be in Stuttgart. Uh, I'm going to be there. I'm going to uh, use it to um, prepare my talk for uh, Republika that is about to happen yeah, in two weeks uh, time. So I have several stages of preparation here and I'm going to use this to talk about my vision of, you know, media, mm -hmm. alternative some, media and podcasting. Some plans you have, some visions, some ideas. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's uh, 6 to 8 of May. That's uh, Republika in Berlin. I won't be there, but Tim will. So if you can get there, you should, dear listener. Oh, yeah. And we uh, are going to have a, a room, a separate, very nice room at Republika for the uh, full three days. There's a, a, a sketch of it on the front page of the Republika website right now. Yes, there's a <laughs> posting, right, too. Uh, although that's not the latest rendering we've sent oh. them, uh, but it's going to be something like this. Uh, this looks so like Second Life. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be our Second Life at the event, uh, for sure. So basically what we're doing, we set up a stage where everybody can do their own podcast and, you know, so you can walk in and just listen to somebody doing media right there. Live, mm -hmm. it's going to be streamed. It's going to be streamed uh, with both video, audio. Um, yeah, we're putting out recordings of our daily magazine, the, the Sondersendung mm -hmm. uh, on Republika. And of course, all those podcasters who produce their own shows, they are going to put out their stuff in their uh, channels too. So we invite everybody who is somehow interested in our alternative media universe to drop in, say hello, uh, maybe come up with their own show. There are still slots available um, or contribute in any other uh, way. Uh, this is going to be preceded by the next Potlove workshop uh, the weekend before. So that's why it's going to be very super busy week for me. Um, yeah. <clears throat> more than... 17 section. people have uh, oh, 17. Yeah, subscribed to it. You, you could have a section on your website, Tim. You could call it tour, tour dates. <laughs> Actually, I have something like this. It's a, oh, okay. a calendar of uh, events. Oh, but it's done. Never mind. <laughs> all right, let's get out of here. Uh, we will catch you all as soon as possible. And in the meantime, thanks for being there and being subscribed and uh, being you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Bye.